Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is Jill Sobule the Denver native who has been performing for decades since she was a teenager. She has done it all as a singer-songwriter, caught mainstream attention with a hit single, opened for the biggest stars, had a band, performed solo, written music for TV and theater, recorded albums for major labels, and put out songs only on the internet, and she pioneered crowdfunding. She has amassed a devoted following, and her amazing career continues. Welcome, Jill. Thank you for having me. You grew up in Denver, a third generation native on one side of your family. Third generation on both sides of the family. You've had some great intellectual and performing cred in the family tree. Well, there was always the family lore that my grandfather was in the circus with Jack Dempsey. It was the Sells Floto Circus, and they said he was the barker and also his sparring partner. And you hear things, but I didn't have any proof of it. And then a couple years ago, I went on Jack Dempsey Sells Floto Circus, and sure enough, there's a picture of my grandfather. So I guess I come from circus family. (laughs) I can say that now. That's a great resume. Yes. I'm just throwing it out. Manhattan Project? Oh, yeah. Uncle Arnold worked with Oppenheimer and was in the Manhattan Project. And we also think that he was a a spy. And I got together last week with all the cousins and relatives. His wife, who's still alive, Aunt Vivian, and she's not going to hear this. But we're going to get her drunk and go down in the basement and look at all his files. (laughs) I'm not a very good spy, am I? A couple of cousins. Sarah Boxer. She worked at the New York Times Book Review. She was the editor of that, and she had a great book, a graphic novel, about her father, actually. He was a psychiatrist. On one side, I have a pro wrestling champion. Goldberg. Goldberg. And there was nothing better than seeing a bunch of rednecks yell out, Goldberg, Goldberg. (laughs) In the New Yorker, there was someone that said, Goldberg's good for the Jews. I guess that was the point to be made. That was the point. (laughs) But I'm the only singer-songwriter-y person. You were enrolled in St. Mary's Catholic School here in Denver, known like most Catholic schools for the strict discipline. I assume that's why a nice Jewish girl like you wound up there. Well, it ended up that those Catholic girls were way worse than the public school girls. (laughs) It was bad for me. Yeah, the year before, I went to Hull Junior High School, and then I saw the movie Billy Jack. Do you remember Billy Jack? Go ahead and hate your neighbor. Go ahead and cheat a friend. Do it in the name of heaven. You can justify it in the end. I wanted to go to a hippie free school, so I bugged my mom to go, and it was on 16th and Pennsylvania, maybe. It's where the, where's the old church or synagogue? was called Lothlorien. Ninth grade was just a waste. All we did was smoke pot and play pool and read Carlos Castaneda. (laughs) So then I thought, you know what? I'm going to get a good education, and I have a couple friends. So I put myself in St. Mary's Academy. I was up for new experiences. Catholic girls' school, that sounded new. (laughs) (laughs) 
there's a bit of lore that you had an original song called Jesus Played the Dreidel. Well, no, Jesus was a dreidel spinner. No, fifth grade I had a song. My first song was Nixon is a Bad Man, Spyro Agnew (laughs) 2. And then I helped put on the shows at St. Mary's. We did takeoffs of the Andy Williams show, do you remember? Oh, yep. sure. So it was a little subversive. But the nuns at St. Mary's, they were kind of the cooler nuns. I never had the experience of the things that I hear of, the ruler on your hands. And then a few years later, after I graduated, I remember going to, was it Trax or a gay bar? I saw a couple of the Mex nuns from St. Mary's. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> What was going on in that nunnery? (laughs) College age, you studied at the University of Colorado, Mm -hmm. and at that point started singing and playing acoustic, but you said you never had the nerve at that point to play your songs for other people. I played guitar, so I was a guitar player in bands. I had written songs, but I never sang my own songs, and I didn't think they were any good, and they were mostly like my little journals. So on my third year abroad did that program in Spain and I played on the street with a friend as kind of a goofball thing and that was the first time I ever sang my songs in public. I figured I'd never see these people again and they probably didn't understand what I was singing. Perfect audience. (laughs) You came back to Denver and started playing in front of locals. Yeah I did. uh, I think it was an open mic and I can't even tell you where it was and then I remember my first place was a restaurant called Professor Plum's. And then I remember playing Josephina's and the Bratskeller. That was a unique period in Denver's music scene. You've said you went through a lot of bands and sounds. You made a living, maybe a meager one, but it's something you didn't think you could have done in New York. Well, I didn't even think about New York. It was just the beginning of MTV. You still thought locally. To me, to get a gig at Josephina's on a weekend... I don't know how bigger you could get. You didn't think on a national scale. And also, as opposed to now, there were so many clubs to play at. Live music. The Bombay Club, which became Spirits. Oh, my gosh, I even played the Holiday Inn on Colorado Boulevard. I remember playing the Mezzanine at the Boulderado, and that was really exciting. Mm -hmm. There was a pizza place, and I can't even remember where it was, that I played Tuesdays. Then I got bigger, and I played... The Mercury Cafe, right? Mm -hmm. I love that place. The cliche that's kind of concurrent with this is that everyone should spend a little time waiting tables during the course of their life to learn some important life lessons. Oh, my God. You were at a number of Denver eateries. Well, at Josephina's and at Spirits, I waited tables and I would play at night. And I was a horrible waitress. Really? Oh, yeah. I've always had shaky hands. I've always had this essential tremor. And it's just not good. It's not good for a waitress. And I never was good at figuring out what table was where. I had to write down everything. I was slow. I was polite, but that doesn't make it. There was one time, oh, my God, there was a place called Tudor Crown. It was on Colorado Boulevard where Tiffin's used to be or coffee shop. I was the bread girl where I would go around with the bread basket to each table, and I'd say, oh, here's your popover, or here's this bread. And it had this big tong that was sharp. And like I said, I kind of have shaky hands, and I accidentally hit an artery on my hand. And I'm serving, and it's like Monty Python blood <laughs> spurting out at these people. Yeah, it wasn't a good career. You started migrating between New York and Nashville as well as Denver. 
uh, I think it was 87 or 86. I was moving to New York, but at the same time, a guy came to that show in downtown Denver who was a publisher out of Nashville, and he said, I'd like to work on some non-country people. That's where the Nashville thing came in. So I moved to New York, but I would go to Nashville every two months and write with people, and that's actually where I got my first record deal. You're too cool to fall in love. You're too cool to fall in love. Only fools have open hearts. You're too cool. Your first album, Things Here Are Different, mm-hmm. produced by Todd Rundgren, oh, which yeah. was such an exciting prospect at the time. And I've always hated that it was a bad experience for you. Well, in retrospect, I'm glad I have that experience. Sure. First of all, it's hard working with people who you admire, especially when you were a kid. You can't get over that. You're intimidated. And Todd at that time, and still he's got the worst bedside manners of anyone. I'd sing a song, and it would be, all right, that was adequate. Let's move on to the next one. And I hadn't been in a studio that much, so it was devastating. And I think he was in a bad place in his life, but I adore him. We've become friends since then. But it wasn't a great first record for me. And I blame a lot on me of not being assertive like I should be, but I didn't know what to do. But now I look upon it as I got tougher. That album, not many people heard. You opened for Joe Jackson following that. You made a record with him? That was an exciting experience, and the label didn't like it. So I got dropped from the label. Not only that, I did some tracks with a woman named Susan Rogers, who was Prince's engineer, and I worked with Wendy and Lisa. But I got dropped from MCA. That was tough. Your management dropped the ball to a degree, I thought. But you did come to the attention of Atlantic Records by way of a lawyer acquaintance. Yes. And put out a self-titled album in 1995 that was filled with your wry whimsy and melodic gifts. You had a reputation as a really clever songwriter. You wrote a ditty that caused quite an upheaval. You garnered a lot of publicity thanks to I Kissed a Girl which I have called an innocent yet seditious ode to sexual experimentation. Yes, can I use that? So we laugh, compared notes. We had a drink, we had a smoke. She took off her overcoat. I kissed a girl. Great song. Two women comparing notes about what jerks their boyfriends are and dabbling in an act that the lyric was just like kissing me, only better. I remember a radio station in Nashville actually aired parental advisories before (laughs) playing that song. I loved that so much. But I always gave you credit because you didn't fuel the fire by confirming or denying anything. Yeah, on one hand, though, I wish I would have been a little more aggressive with that. To me, it was important to have a song about the same-sex kiss. There was nothing like that. Having crushes on my girlfriends in junior high school, and I wish there would have been a song like that. And I think I was a little meeker, now that I think about it. The label, at first thought it was cool, and then I think they kind of chickened out, and they were like, we're going to make this the 
cute little novelty song, where I wanted it to be more subversive and empowering. Remember the video where we had Fabio, me and the neighbor girl? We were supposed to, at the end, we actually have a kiss, which would have been amazing. And they chickened out at the last moment, and they showed me pregnant with Fabio's baby instead. <laughs> we were really upset. I remember my big breakthrough interview with Entertainment Weekly. To me, it was about the song, and instead it was me going to Fabio's house and being interviewed, like, how was it to be in a video with the hunkiest man in America? That was how it was dealt with. I wish I would have been more radical in a certain way. It was a double-edged sword. I wanted also to be thought of serious singer-songwriter, and I didn't want it to be here as lesbian singer-songwriter. So it was a tricky time period. It happened real fast, too. It happened really fast, yeah. yeah. But to this day, all the time, every week, someone Facebook are saying how when they were a kid that that song gave them comfort in some way or another, yeah. And that's the long-term success. But then anyone under 25 has no idea about the song. They just know the Katy Perry song. This is in 2009 when Katy Perry has that pop smash with the song with the same title but shared nothing else. You had to be back in the news cycle fielding questions about it. Like I said, it was like, ah, I'm so tired of being just known as the Kiss the Girl girl. And then when she had it, it was like, hey, wait a minute, Buster, I'm the Kiss the Girl girl. (laughs) Hey, stop it. The one positive thing was that a lot of 13 or 14-year-old girls accidentally bought my record. (laughs) That was pretty great. Yeah. I was in Atlanta this summer, and there were these two cute high school girls with their clipboards, and they were like, are you for gay rights? No, I felt like with a cigarette hanging from my mouth, you don't even know. (laughs) (laughs) And then I told them, yeah, I had a song before Katy Perry called. I kissed a girl, and they looked at each other like I was a crazy woman. Back to 1995, you had another great song that was in the cultural ferment, Supermodel. Oh, yeah. A satirical song featured very prominently in Clueless, the hit teen comedy film. We need the song for the movie. And none of us had any idea that it was going to be quite the hit and actually a really good movie. I thought it was just going to be a cheesy teen movie. I made some mistakes. I was like, no, no, I want to do a really weird video rather than something more commercial. So it was one where we reenacted Carrie, where I burned a fashion show down. I had pig's blood on me, and it was even too weird for MTV. I really loved it, but now I'm like, God, I should have done just a total commercial video for it. I look back at my career and think there was always that pull between wanting to be commercial and wanting to be arty and strange and go with my own vision of things. Red Rocks. I got to open up for Crosby, Stills, and Nash once. And I remember my mom. This is so great. I was so excited. And my brother was there, and it started getting cold. And the clouds, and I'm about to go on. And she goes, honey, why don't you put on your card again? It's like, no, I'm not going to put on my card again. Put out a couple more records for major labels. Happy Town was wonderful. My favorite was always Soldiers of Christ. 
was after the response to I Kissed a Girl, and also I think coming from Colorado. I still feel a deep connection to my state and lots of friends from Colorado Springs. And Colorado Springs was all of a sudden the Haggard Church, focus on the family. It was a response to that particular form of Christianity. Wow, I remember my friend had a bumper sticker, lived in Colorado Springs, that said, Focus on your own family. (laughs) Oh, she had another one. When the rapture comes, can I have your stuff? (laughs) That was really good. Another album, Pink Pearl, featured a song Mm. called Lucy at the Gym, about an exercise addict. Anorexic. Uh, There was a taste of that in Supermodel as well. Well, in my 20s, there was a six-year period where I suffered with uh, eating disorder. Even though I'm supposed to write a song for a movie, Supermodel, you can't help but put your own, I can't help but put my own experiences into things. Lucy at the gym Lucy on the scale for the third time Through thick and thin Lucy's at the gym there was kind of a musical sorority at the time. I'm thinking of women like Lisa Loeb and even Juliana Hatfield, Sam Phillips. They were all getting various degrees of attention. I always felt like a loner in anything. But at the same time, you felt like there was a movement. I remember when I first got signed to MCA, the Todd Rungan record. There was like a mini bidding war for me, but I remember there was a couple other labels that says, we already have a female artist. During the 90s, the Lilith Fair days, you saw a resurgence, and that was really wonderful and great to see because it had been horrific beforehand, really. There's a duality to your work that has always reminded me of some of my heroes from the 70s, people like Loudon Wainwright III and Randy Newman, guys who could make you laugh one second and cry the very next, could write emotive ballads and then detailed character studies, funny and sweet and wistful and then cruel and vengeful at times too. I remember my brother had a John Prine record, and I remember hearing Sam Stone or Hello in there, and I thought, And Loudon's, too, not even just Dead Skunk. And I thought, wow, the writing. It's like a mini short story, and it's also, like Sam Stone, for an example, is there's a hole in Daddy's arm, this cute, sweet melody, but it's like, holy shit, he's talking about a junkie. And that affected me so much. You know what? I've been lucky that I've befriended those people. I've opened up for John Prine. I did protest songs. There was an event that Loudon asked me to be on. And then friends with Warren, Zevon. And so I've been lucky in my life to know these old geezers. <laughs> and I guess they were my mentors. That affected what I still do today. Don't let us get sick. Don't let us get old. Don't let us get stupid. Make us be brave and make us play nice. You had a special bond with Warren, especially. Before he passed, you toured with him, and your version of Don't Let Us Get Sick is a definitive cover. Thank Great you. stuff. He was wonderful to me. 
I remember when I first got the gig, I was so intimidated. I just gave him a lot of space. And I remember one day he came up to my room and says, what do I have, rabies or something? And then we became inseparable on those tours. And I think I knew him after his mm -hmm. raging drug days. You covered Robert Earl Keene's holiday classic to great effect, Merry Christmas from, from the family. family. Yeah. Your version, the production is wonderfully loose. That was one of the best sessions I ever had in Nashville with my friends. I made everyone get drunk. The drummer, <laughs> if you listen to it, you'll hear he dropped his sticks and picked them back up. And that's exactly what I wanted it to be. It's sloppy. Yeah. And that's what it was. So the resume in the aughts, you dabbled in writing music for off-Broadway musicals. You appeared on The West Wing on NBC, playing in a bar when Toby and CJ were arguing some moral point. You composed songs for Unfabulous, which was that Nickelodeon series. You were one of the five leads in Mind the Gap, an indie film. You were Jody, a musician who worried what heartache would do to your pacemaker. Yeah, but my one role ever was playing a struggling singer-songwriter. Yeah. Like, I can take this. Was that a concerted effort to expand your horizons into acting and theater, or did opportunities just present themselves? I don't understand how people make it anymore. People don't buy music. You have to find other outlets, but it wasn't a matter of survival too. It was that I wanted to do new things. Writing for the theater didn't seem all that different for me because uh, jazz hand musical sound wasn't expected from me. And I write stories anyway. So that seemed like a natural place to go, especially if I wasn't following whatever a current pop trend would be. You are such a prolific collaborator. That's one of your greatest gifts that doesn't get enough run. You came through Denver with Julia Sweeney, the wonderful comedian. You've worked and continue to work with the likes of Lloyd Cole and Ben Lee and members of the Go-Go's, John Doe from X, Richard Barone from the Bongo's, Wayne Kramer, the MC5. So you've always been good at joining forces. In the corporate world, you'd be called a team player, Joe. I you am. When I was with Lloyd and we did the band, The Negatives, Lloyd Cole and The Negatives, I didn't even sing in that band. I just loved being a guitar player. In 2009, you released a record that was funded entirely by fan donations. JillsNextRecord.com right. was the site. You raised 75000 Supporters got a free download for $10, and if you donated 10000 you got a chance to actually sing, sing on the record. Yeah. You were a pioneer of crowdfunding. It if was, I recall, Kickstarter was still just a startup. Kickstarter wasn't even there yet. In fact, I knew people that were working with Kickstarter, and they had meetings with me. What worked, the tears, and it's one of those, like, why didn't I think to start a business? Sheepers, what a schmo I am. Well, don't you fret and don't be blue. You had me and I had you. It was a good life. It was a good, good I did so well because when I did it, no one was being harassed in their inbox by help me with my project. 
you weren't inundated with so many people and it took me a long time to do it again almost nine years I remember I stopped it at 75,000 I think I could have done more but do you remember Perez Hilton sure yet it's something against me he had the horrible picture of me with dollar signs on my head and greedy greedy begging her fans for money I was devastated and then a year later everyone else is doing it <laughs> and nowadays unless you're that point zero zero one percent I don't know how artists without fan support do it You've had some loss. Your dear mom passed away, relationship ended. My stepfather, suicide. I had a couple years of, I didn't want to write, and then it came back, thank God, with a vengeance. The theme of your latest recording, Nostalgia Kills, seems to be more of a look back than pushing ahead. Turn off the lights I'll pull down the screen And turn on the projector And then we'll see How it used to be You and me You and It's a bit of a memoir in a way to me, it feels like a little book of short stories, but the title track, Nostalgia Kills, is saying, take a look, talk about it, but get a move on. <laughs> Island of Lost Things, a wistful look back. Yeah. I've been commissioned to do a show called Hashtag Fuck Seventh Grade. <laughs> and a couple of the songs, like Island of Lost Things, are on it, and those years, especially those junior high school years, you know, the worst years of your life, no matter how bad the last couple of years were for me, or we say that year of loss, nothing will be ever as worse as seventh grade. <laughs> so Denver plays a big part because this is where I was raised and this is where I was at that period of time. So it makes you who you are. I lost my keys, I lost my heart. Lost my car in the parking lot Lost my voice but can hear sing From the island of lost things Island of lost You do a cover of Ooh Child. I have a vision of you at nine years old playing the 45 in your bedroom over and over. Maybe you just heard it on KIMN. Music saved me and there were certain songs. Ooh Child was one of them, thinking like, yeah, I understand. I, oh, it is going to get better. I'm going to go to a new school and <laughs> meet different people who are nicer. So that's one of those songs that get me all the time, no matter how many times I hear it. Ooh, child, things are going to get easier. Ooh, child, things will get brighter. would be remiss if we did not mention how active you are in a lot of social and political causes. The point could be made as simply as saying that the name of your label is Pinko Records. Pinko Records. <laughs> how was that responsibility instilled in you? Early as a kid, and maybe music had a lot to do with it, music I love. We're talking about John Prine. Your flag decal won't get you into heaven anymore. The first 
time I ever learned the F word was the Woodstock record. The fish chair. The f- yeah. And my brother had the MC5. Kick out the jams, uh, brothers out, and sisters. Kick out the jams, which I've gotten to play many a time with Wayne with Kramer. Wayne Kramer. That's like getting so, communion from the Pope. Right? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Early on, I remember, was it fifth grade? I couldn't wait to get home to watch Watergate. That was more exciting to me than anything. And so, for some reason, I was always a little lefty hippie. And musically, from Soldiers of Christ to America Back, I've always had semi-activist songs, or I call them that. And Dwayne Kramer and Billy Bragg have jail guitar doors where we go to prisons and play and talk about prison reform and mandatory minimums. I did one tour. It's called Tell Us the Truth Tour, and it was a bus with me and Boots Riley, who I love, and Steve Earle and Tom Morello. They needed a girl lefty activist, so I got the call. I got the call. I get a lot of hate mail, which I'm okay with. I don't take it personal at all. It means I'm doing something. What's your favorite musician's choke, Jill? Here's the saddest of them all. <laughs> what do roadies kids do during recess? What, Jill? Watch other kids play. <laughs> I know! <laughs> so sad. So sad. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Let me see a song. Oh, you know what I'll do? Me and Betty Shelley were at Cinnamon Park Waiting for the battle of the bands Betty's older brother had a bad reputation And a waterbed in his van He said, hey, Jill and Sue, I got something for you Something that'll blow your mind We walked into his van Open his hand, he said, It's only Mother Nature, only Mother Nature. Cinnamon Park in the cinnamon days. So freaked out, but in a really good way. In a really good way, yeah, those were the days. I wish I could go back again. Billy had a talk box and a PB bass. Started feeling funny when they hit the stage. Betty was getting so shit faced, and I could not stop laughing. As it spun all around and I laid on the ground, I was amazed how the clouds just kept moving. And they played the same song, and they played the chords wrong. Never heard it better, never heard it better. Cinnamon Park in the cinnamon days. So freaked out, but in a really good way. Really good way, yeah, those were the days. I wish I could go back again. And here's where the like freak out section is. It's not done! It's the end credit of the movie. Betty's now in rehab and she's using again. Her brother's unemployed with a brand new band. Billy came in second in the battle of the bands. Wish I could go back again. Oh yeah, cinnamon park and the cinnamon days. 
so freaked out, but in a really good way. Really good way, yeah, those were the days. I wish I could go back, wish I could go back. Cinnamon Park in the cinnamon days. So freaked out, but in a really good way. Really good way, yeah, those were the days. I wish I could go back again now. <laughs> Denver song. That was good thinking. That was really good thinking. Awesome. The Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization, relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C O L O Music. Terrapin Care Station is a Boulder-based, vertically integrated, consumer-focused cultivator, processor, and provider of high-quality medical and recreational cannabis products. Terrapin loves music and is proud to partner with Colorado Music Experience to educate the public on everything great about our state's music history. It adds significant cultural value across Colorado, solidifying our state's position as a leader. Follow Terrapin on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit terrapincarestation.com.